Hello and welcome to the Price of Football, the podcast that follows the money behind our beautiful, beautiful, God how we miss it game of football. I'm Kevin Day and at a not very sociable remote distance, about 55 miles, is Kieran Maguire. Hello, Kieran. Morning, Kevin. Uh, it's just, it is morning, yes. In, in true Simpson style, it, was, it became afternoon just as you said that. That was quite good. I'm pleased about that. Um, how, how is the uh, Professor of Football Finance at Liverpool University this morning? I'm I'm very good. Leeds United's results came out this morning, so at <laughs> six o'clock I was I was up to my ears in it. Now, it, Kieran, before we start, I mean this it's football. It's got quite fractious this week, and it, it it seems to me that football will be one of those industries that will be saying to the government very soon they may need to recalibrate the balance between protecting the vulnerable and not destroying the economy. Yes, I I think that's uh, that that's reflective not just on football but on practically all of the entertainment industry. Um, and, and that's what football is. Uh, it is. It is professional entertainment. There are lots of clubs that are very vulnerable at present uh, because they are in the lower leagues. They don't have uh, sizable amounts of TV money or sponsorship money coming in. And then there are other clubs which are far more wealthy. So I, I think sort of the one-size-fits-all solutions which are being put forward by some people really are uh, invalid and, and really haven't been thought through. Now, Liverpool have made a U-turn on the furlough situation. I'm not surprised by the U-turn, but rather surprised by the fact they did it in the first place because right from the start, Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp in particular has been associated as being one of those clubs that are doing the right thing. So did that come as a surprise to you when they announced the, the furlough for staff? Uh, not necessarily. Um, they, they have had a couple of decisions which they've reversed uh, historically. When they uh, when they increased the capacity of Anfield recently from forty five to fifty four thousand, one of the things that they did is that they made the prices in the new stand very prohibitive, very high indeed, um, and, and that upset. Uh, as you know, I work in Liverpool. That upset the local fans. Then the club reversed that, uh, and and I think what they've done here that they've. They've not they've not thought things through. Um, if if they're going to uh, let's say they're going to furlough three hundred people for three months, uh, the the cost to the the exchequer for that is is two and a quarter million pounds. Now over the course of the last five years, Liverpool have made two hundred and seventy million pounds in profit. So it is a small amount. Um, I, I think somehow the the accountants have been let loose and and yeah you know, that they. They haven't considered the the impact upon the fan base who uh, are uh, very vocal um, and and they do expect more from the club um, and they and think perhaps the club thought that they could get away with it but uh, to be fair everybody I know connected with the club uh, in terms of fan base in terms of the commentators has has shot them down and. I think they they were forced to to do the U turn. Um, as much as anything else, the, the value of the Liverpool brand was going to fall far more in excess of the two million pounds that they were saving in terms of wages. Yeah, which is an issue we saw with Tottenham as well. But it's 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 funny because you would hope that the bigger clubs would take a lead in this, wouldn't they? The ones that really really can afford it, you'd think, would be saying to the public, "Look, we, yeah, we are one of the lucky few, as some big companies have done. Let's set an example. Let's let's lead." by that example 
Well, yes. And if you take a look at uh, the, the announcement that came from Manchester United yesterday, they made it very clear that they, they don't want to use the furlough scheme. There's no intention in doing so. Um, they're still committing to paying their match day staff, even though there's no matches. Um, and, and United and, and Manchester City, I think you've got to give credit to both of the two big Manchester clubs, have have dealt with this, A, correctly, but also from a public relations point of view, they, they appear to have led from the front and you've got to give both of them credit. West Ham leading from the front as well, uh, to an extent. They're, they're sort of looking ahead at future financial problems. One of the first Premier League teams to admit there might be financial problems for a club that size. But they've come up with a, a solution, haven't they, or a potential solution to any economic worries. Yes, and, and again, uh, yeah, we, we know that uh, David Gold and David Sullivan do come in from a lot for a lot of stick from West Ham fans, you know, some of which is very justified. But uh, in, in respect of the way that they're dealing with the pandemic, um, what they've said is we, we do expect to be short of money at some point. Um, but what we're going to do instead um, is that we're going to have a share issue. We're going to um, put £30 million into the club in the form of shares. And on the back of that, we think that should be enough to see us over the summer. Do you think that this will buy us some time for, for football clubs now, like West Ham in particular, who, as you say, are always getting criticised by the fans at the moment, well, certainly since the, the move to the new stadium. Is your instinct that fans will, will suddenly give them a year off or give them a season off and go, look, they are, in the circumstances, perhaps we should all you know, wait a while before we start having a go at owners who are trying to do their best. Well, I, I think uh, I think West Ham fans should really give them a fair hearing on this. Um, you know, there are pluses and minuses in respect of Gold and Sullivan. Uh, they have uh, they, they do have some of the lowest season ticket prices in the Premier League. I, I appreciate you're watching the match from a, a much further distance than most fans, so perhaps you deserve a discount for that. But all the same, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's around about three hundred and twenty, three hundred and forty pounds for season tickets in in the cheapest areas. So they, they could have perhaps charged more, and they chose not to do so um, well, I think the criticism but, sorry Kieran I think that's it's hard isn't it when we're remote it's so, it's so easy to interrupt you when I can actually see you and glare at you and tell you to stop speaking but now when we're so far away the, also I think disgruntled West Ham fans will point out that the season tickets are cheap because they had a very big stadium to fill essentially and, and I think if they tried to charge what they would, would have wanted to charge they would have struggled to sell seats in there I mean notwithstanding that their corporate facilities are, are, are amazing they need to put bums on seats. And that's, I think that's why the, the season tickets were so cheap. I don't think there was a, a, a huge degree of altruism involved in Golden Sullivan's decision there. OK, f- fair enough. I mean, I, I thought it was part of the, the, sell, the sell to the fans. If, if, we, if, you do, if we move from Upton Park, from the bowling ground, um, then uh, what we'll do on, on the back of that is that we'll make it very affordable for people. I agree with you entirely. They had to sell more tickets. There's still a waiting list um, you know, for season tickets at West Ham. Uh, they have, well, I think, one of the highest numbers of season tickets in the uh, in the Premier League. It's, uh, it's the capacity is sixty thousand. I think they've sold fifty four thousand season tickets, uh, and there's still a waiting list on top of that. Uh, I think that the, the fans' beef is is very much along the lines of it. It doesn't feel like home. It does feel like a bowl. Um, and ultimately, the quality of the football has been a bit up and down. And as we both know, three wins on the bounce and, and everybody's a lot happier regardless of the team that you're supporting. Yeah, and also I just realised what a hypocrite I've been, Kieran. Just literally seconds after I called for football fans to give their club owners at least a year's slack, 
I started criticising some club owners. But not my club, so that doesn't count. Now, before we get on to quite a serious discussion, the PFA and the Premier League, I want to, I want to pause for a little sorbet, Kieran. I think it's only fair that we, yeah, we've had two quite heavy courses. Let's, before we go on to the, the, the very sweet dessert, um, let's, let's talk about Carl Walker uh, and his, <laughs> what he, I think what you could kindly call his flagrant flouting of self-distancing rules with two professional women. Um, it's funny, but there will be a financial cost to Carl Walker because this, um, I imagine the club will be taking sanctions against him, won't they? Um, yes, uh, I think he's probably feeling very foolish, and I suspect every two football... thousand quid an hour. I'm not surprised he's feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of them was a university student. No, really. Yeah, I, I, I oh, presume well. she was some sort of business innovation course she's on. But fair play to her for. For charging him that amount, that 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 counts towards your your your, your rent uh, for certain. Um, yeah, he's he's done something which is really dumb. I suspect that every um, ev- every footballer's uh, WhatsApp group in the country <laughs> for the Premier League has just gone. Oh Jesus Christ, Kyle! We we're, we're doing our best to win win over hearts and minds, yeah. and then you show this complete lack of common sense. Um, yeah, he he will almost certainly get a, a two week fine from the club, um, and and rightly so. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to be as bad as the abuse he's going to be getting next season. Yeah, um, you, you can imagine what uh, opposing fans are going to do, and, and I don't think uh, uh, that. Uh, that uh, City fans will be over-impressed as well because they, they were starting to, to take the moral high ground yeah. in respect of the fact that, that City were, you know, City have been very generous in terms of their support for local food banks, yeah. in terms of committing to, to all of their staff and, and things of this nature. And then along he comes and that fits into the stereotype yeah. of what we are led to believe a footballer is. And I yeah. think you and I, we, we both met, met, both met footballers and you know, they are just, they're just young men. Um, you know, and, and we've done some daft things when we were that age and, and they've done some daft things as well, but it doesn't make them bad people. No, no, it's, it's just a shame because it, it, it came, the news broke not long after our last podcast recording when we spoke at length about how generous footballers are in terms of community schemes and charities, etc. And, I suppose, to his credit, he could claim that he was helping the local economy in his own small way. But And, and the worst thing for Carl Walker is that football fans have now got a lot of time on their hands to come up with the, the chance that he's going to get. Now, listen, on to a serious story. We, we talked at the start about how football, the cracks are starting to show. There's not been a united front this week. And the PFA and the Premier League are, I think, loggerheads is, is the kind way of putting it, isn't it? Uh, very much so. Uh the the Premier League owners between them ha- are are worth probably somewhere in the region of eighty billion pounds. Mm. So so what we have here sorry, is, Karen, sorry, sorry, you mean the owners themselves or the clubs are worth the, the owners? Money? The owners. If you look okay. at the, the wealth of the owners, right? Yeah, okay. you know, so, so, incredible levels of wealth, but just like in football clubs, that's not evenly spread. So there are some clubs with owners who's, who can quite easily put their hands in the pocket and, and pay the wages. If you take a look at Roman Abramovich at Chelsea, last year he, he lent the club £250 million. Yeah. Now, if he can afford to do that, then I think the player's point of view will be, well, why, why should we make a wage sacrifice on yeah. that basis? We're not, what ultimately 
are people trying to achieve here? If, if they just want to see footballers punished because there is this perception of footballers being overpaid, then that's just silly populism. Yeah. Um, if, if we're trying to ensure that the NHS gets as much money as possible, well, why not pay the footballers the full wage? They they will then pay 45% yeah. in tax. And then, of course, on top of that, they can also, and are doing so, in terms of making donations, showing their commitment to local charities, and just being good good citizens. And I think lots of people are trying to do that in a variety of ways. Uh, the, the idea of trying to twist the players' arms behind their back to to fulfil an agenda in respect of an industry which employs 500 people as far as the first-team squads of Premier League clubs are concerned. Now, I don't see political focus applying for any other industry which employs so few people. Mm. So it, I, I just can't understand the logic behind um, this, apart from um, some, pe- some people are envious of what some footballers earn. Also, as well, the, the populism one is very interesting because you, you don't see... And I'm going to use Anton Deck as an example here. There's no, there's no popular outcry for very, very expect wealthy. You know, is Piers Morgan taking a pay cut? Are, are Anton Deck taking a pay cut? Yeah, Jacob Rees-Mogg's investment company is is telling its investors that this is a really useful opportunity. Where's the outcry about that? And it's it's it seems odd to me. And we've talked about this before. The image of footballers, and possibly they're suffering for some excess in the 80s and 90s. But it does seem to me that footballers albeit very visible high earners, are the ones that are being picked on here rather than very, very many high-earning people. Richard Branson, for example, who laid all his staff off on eight weeks without pay. Where's where's the headlines about that? It, it annoys me a little bit. Yeah, it, it's easy pickings. And I, I appreciate that, that Matt Hancock was given effectively a, you know, a, a tap-in uh, when, he, when he was being quizzed the other night. Yeah. Somebody brought up that question, and I think that was just poor journalism. Yeah. But what we have seen since then is that other politicians are, are joining in with the same comments. Uh, you know, the, the vast majority of the cabinet um, own rented accommodation. Now, are they all taking, uh, is all the rent from that? Is that being yeah. given to good causes and things of that nature? Um, it, it's very easy to focus on other people's income, um, especially if you think it's undeserved. I, I, I watched uh, Toy Story 3 um, on, on, uh, on the TV the other day. I didn't say... I thought it was a good film, but I would have liked it a lot more had Tom Hanks not earned $40 million for doing the voiceover. It's, and it's the same with regards to football. All these people who are saying, I'm never going to watch the game again because they're overpaid. Well, we, I don't get, we don't go to watch football due to the, the payments or non-payments to football. We go to it because we love football. And it's, it's just a diversion, all this stuff about players' wages. It's, I think it's living proof that this lockdown has gone on too long if you're watching Toy Story 3, Kieran. It's. I would have been here a long time. If you said to me, what DVD did I watch the other day? I would have been here a long time. And my first question would have been, as the Baroness out for a walk? Now, the PFA, the PFA and all this as well. The, the PFA, as we've discussed, are a hugely wealthy organisation, aren't they? Yes. Um, and uh, there's been focus on Gordon Taylor's pay. Um, so he's now giving half a million pounds to the good causes. The PFA itself is giving a million pounds to some of the NHS charities. Um, but is, is this is just try, again trying to shame people into doing things? Um, in which case, is it is it a genuine uh, donation that they're giving? Mm. It, it's, there's no logic here. Certainly the PFA 
I think from a public relations point of view, has has been slow um, and it's not thought things through. But that doesn't mean that it, in, it, in itself, it's what it's done is wrong. It is there to protect its members. Um, and I think what it has done is it stood up from it mem- its members. I think we're now probably closer to a strike or something of that nature um, from football players than at any time in the, in the history of the Premier League. The reason why the clubs are trying to force through uh, the uh, the deals and effectively get the players to sign off on them is as simple as this. We, we've spoken on many occasions about football players being treated as commodities. And if you take a look at a player's contract, now we are both, as we know, we are both pub lawyers. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I just do spreadsheets, but I know, I know a tiny bit about the law. Um, my understanding is that if you fail to play a player um, for two months, uh, his full wage, then the club is in breach of contract and the player can walk away. So therefore, if we take a look at Harry Kane, um, if Spurs fail to pay him two months in a row, his full amount, he could walk away to Manchester United in the summer on a free transfer. And that is why clubs have been focusing on uh, non-playing staff uh, in terms of the furlough. And in t- and they've been trying to get the players to to agree to the pay cut rather than introduce it unilaterally. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm only a pub lawyer like you, Kieran, but I, a long time ago I was an industrial relations advisor at the London Ambulance Service. And as such, I'm struggling to work out what the players would do if they go on strike. This now would not be a good time for players to go on strike. Now, listen, there are, there are other football stories, um, thankfully, the first one I don't think will come as a surprise to many of us. Um, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I really actively don't like conspiracy theories or the people that spread them. Uh, and if you're listening to this and you've tried to set fire to a 5G mast, you're an idiot. But US prosecutors have now very heavily indicated that they think some senior FIFA officials may have taken bribes for the World Cup to end up in Russia and Qatar. Yes, there was a uh, there was a seventy page litigation paper uh, which came out uh, yesterday. Um, so, th- so that occupied me for an hour or two poring over that, <laughs> um, and it named about seven or eight uh, FIFA officials, many of them are former FIFA re- officials, um, in respect of first of all the awarding of the, the the Russia and Qatari World Cup rights. It also went back to the um, 2010 World Cup rights as well for South Africa. Um, the majority of the FIFA officials are in South America, uh, and, and it involves some great, uh, great American-style uh, phrases, embezzlement and paybacks and things of this nature. Um, one, one of the guys involved is uh, Jack Warner of, of Trinidad, uh, and no. I think if, if you take a look at historically at the FA's relationship, I don't know whether you remember uh, a few years ago, I think when the when the Football Association was trying to get Trinidad's support for yeah. hosting the 2018 World Cup, England went across to Trinidad to, to play a friendly. Uh, I mean, I, I used to teach in Trinidad and uh, you know, Jack Warner was um, a, a fairly well-known character i think it's the best way of describing him in those <laughs> days um and i think his family have other involvements in football shall we say um so that that's come as no surprise uh, i think the u.s government has tried for extradition uh for jack but have not got very far because jack's now involved in local politics um i think it does just show the 
complete uh, integration of um, unusual behavior, especially when it comes to issues such as broadcasting rights and World Cup rights um, and the, the nature of the way that FIFA operates. Fair play to the Americans. If th- their reputation has been tarnished by their president recently, but when, when they sniff out on injustice, they, they tend to, to follow it up, don't they? They tend to like to get to the bottom of things, the Americans. It might take some time, but they, once, once they're on the case, you kind of think this will be the thing that leads to prosecution. Because none of us are surprised by this, as I alluded to. We all, the Qatar one in particular, Russia, I think you can justify because Russia has got a very deep football tradition. The Qatar one, everybody smelt a rat for, for very many reasons. So no one's particularly surprised to learn that this may be the, the, the case. Yes, um, but of course, you know, the the 2018 World Cup is now history, so that can't be reversed. Um, yeah. If you take a look at the Garcia investigation into both Qatar and Russia, um, Russia said that all of the evidence uh, couldn't be provided to the investigator because they'd rented the laptops that they used to put forward the bid, <laughs> and uh, they'd gone back to the shop, which uh, which I think is is which is so classically Russian. I, mean, I, I used to again, I used to teach in Russia. Uh, for many years, and, and it's a country I love hugely. But uh, in terms of um, a mafia state, it's about as uh, mafioso as you can possibly get. Well, you've taught in a lot of countries, haven't you? Yes, yeah, I, I do get around. Yeah, I used to. Uh, I, I used to have a, a Russian girlfriend who. Um, who, who was very, very strange. Without going into uh, too much detail, after, uh, after what should we all call special cuddles, um, she used to <laughs> sing me Russian folk songs. I was never quite sure how to respond. I didn't know whether she was expecting a bit of Chaz and Dave or a round of applause or, or me to give her money. I could never quite make her out. But uh, yeah, it, it's an amazing country and, and an amazing people. But unfortunately, in terms of institutional corruption, it goes throughout the whole of society. Yeah, I'm sorry. The reason I'm laughing at that uh, for the people at home is that I can actually see Kieran and the fact that you looked over both shoulders to check that the, the Baroness wasn't anywhere near earshot before you told that story is what made me laugh. And that's all. Once again, the dog's trying to get out again. So the dog's clearly heard that story before as well. Now, on safer ground, um, while you were watching Toy Story 3 and reminiscing about Russian girlfriends, uh, two clubs released their, their figures, Reading and Huddersfield. So I'm sure you had a good old pour over those. Well, yes, I think they, they, they're both intriguing for um, different reasons. If, if we take a look at Huddersfield, Huddersfield did very well to get promoted in, in 2017 um, on, a, on a low budget. You know, they, they, they recruited very well, and this is what we are seeing from some clubs. They recruited very well in terms of loan signings. You know, Izzy Brown had a fantastic season. Aaron Moy had a fantastic season. I think they had Casey Palmer as well. They had three loan signings each of whom were on top form that season. On the back of that, they went up and, and fair play to them. They, they survived two years in the Premier League. They made a lot of money and then they were relegated. And what's happened since is that fans have been expecting some of that money because they made a profit in both years. They were, the fans have been saying, well, OK, um, why aren't we pitching for promotion in 2019-20. We've seen Stoke come down and buy lots of players. We've seen Villa do it. And and whilst um, Huddersfield's owners aren't as wealthy, um, they were still expecting a a greater investment in the squad. But it appears that um, Huddersfield was sold to new owners 
um, when up just upon uh, their relegation. And that's partly due to the fact that the former owner, Dean Hoyle, um, he's been very ill and he wanted to pass on the club. But it does look, and I don't know whether you've been watching Sunderland Till I Die um, on Netflix, which is which is an absolute scream. But um, in a similar position to what's happened with Sunderland is that when the sale went through, it appears that the parachute payments coming from the Premier League are being used to fund the deal rather than invest in players. So um, the Huddersfield fans are, are quite disappointed with that because uh, you know, Huddersfield aren't having a great season uh, in 2019-20. In they had thought that by being relatively prudent in their two years in the Premier League, they'd be in a strong position to have a promotion challenge this season, but that's not manifested itself because the money's been used for other purposes. I suppose the club could argue, though. You, you use Stoke as an example, and they, they did spend an awful lot of money, but to, it didn't work. So it's, there's no guarantee that splashing cash at a problem. It's the hardest division to get out of and everybody's spending money they haven't got to bring players in to get out of it. So it's that balance again, isn't it, between your financial future and your short-term ambition. That's right. And, and sort of you know, sort of neatly segueing into that, we've also got Reading. Um, their results came out on Saturday and, and you're probably thinking to yourself, what what did Reading do last season? And they are one of those clubs that they certainly weren't weren't flout, you know, aiming for promotion. Um, they finished twentieth in the season, twentieth in the division, but they set a new uh, EFL record. And and given some of the uh, some of, some of the people involved in the past in the championship, Reading spent two hundred and twenty six pounds on wages. For every one hundred pounds worth of income, they racked up losses of around about forty million from their day-to-day trading, and you, and you think to yourself, well, how on earth did they achieve that? You know, it it just seemed uh, insane. Uh, you know, there's one thing trying to buy your way to promotion, but trying to buy your way to twentieth in the championship by losing that amount of money, um, it's it's the highest uh, relationship between wages and income in in the in the history of the championship. I mean, that's that's doubly interesting. As a friend of mine is a, is a Reading season ticket holder, um, and I was down there a couple of seasons ago for a, a, an FA Cup game at Palace when it was sold out, and he sent me a photograph earlier in this season of of how it was now, and it's just, I mean, the place was empty. So clearly, match day income was has has plummeted. How do they? I mean, I know the championship, as you describe it, is a basket case, but that seems astonishing, those figures, for a club like like Reading. Yeah, and then we then have to start to look at the owners because ultimately somebody's writing off on these checks. Now, the the owners are a, a, a Chinese pair of individuals. They're, they're not necessarily hugely familiar with football, so therefore they're taking advice from other people. If you take a look at Reading, in 2018, they sold the Majeski Stadium to themselves because they needed that to satisfy financial fair play. And in 2019, because of these huge losses, the club's training ground was then sold to another company owned by the owners. Again, this was needed to, for financial fair play. And um, uh, Aluko, who was their, their sort of centre forward, who hadn't exactly ripped up trees, he was loaned to a Chinese club owned by the club owners for three million pounds so we, we we've spoken at length in the past that clubs are engaging in 
decisions and transactions which which look from a business point of view from a sustainability point of view as not being in the interests of the club and once again it seems that financial fair play is uh, is driving all of this it's strange as well Reading, for for fans of our generation who remember the old elm park which was a terrible terrible ground when you had four or five thousand people rattling around inside it and then due to the generosity of Majewski himself, and then they had Russian owners, and so suddenly they're in the, the archetypal new stadium in the Premier League with a manager that we both know and love, Steve Koppel. And, and since then, they've become victims of that Premier League success. Whereas so many clubs strive to get in the Premier League, and yet it breaks them. That's right. It's, it's a classic case of chasing rainbows. And you know there is no pot of gold as as, we, as we've already as we've established on many an occasion, and the excitement of going up for for that one season, as it quite often be the case, if you look at the history of clubs who have been promoted, um, you then come back and. and what we have seen with Reading is that the new owners, and, and you've got to give them some credit for spending the money, but ultimately it's the quality of your decision-making that counts in terms of being able to get yourself promoted. And whoever is advising them in terms of recruitment um, has, has not done a very good job. Now, again, this is going to seem like we've, we've planned this, uh, as you mentioned, a part of gold, and I can reassure people listening at home that we haven't planned anything. I know you'd be disappointed to learn that we do. We don't. Um, You've been analysing the cost of promotion, haven't you? Uh, yes. So what I've done is over the course of the last decade, um, I've, I've got, I'm, I'm just showing Kevin a big spreadsheet here. Um, I've gone through every single club that has been promoted. Um, and uh, what we have seen is that the cost of promotion over the last decade has cost the 30 clubs £900 million. You know, almost a billion pounds to get up to the Premier League. And what they find is once they're there, they start losing money again. Um, so, so in terms of the individual clubs, um, on average, they've spent £131 in wages um, for every £100 worth of income to get up there. And then when you do get up there, you know, what's what's the what's the joy of of going to Stamford Bridge, getting a, a stuffing three or four nil, doing the same at the Etihad uh, and, and then celebrating like crazy when you get a nil nil draw at Burnley? Well, it's it's the image of the Premier League, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the genius branding of the Premier League is what it is. It's Sky as well, who, who just I suppose if you've grown up, if you're a 25 year old football fan, you've grown up with nothing but Sky telling you that, yes, the Championship is the second most exciting league in the world, blah, 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 Friday night, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, we're, we're all led to believe, football fans, now that if you're not in the Premier League, you might as well not be playing football. And it's, it's, it's sad for people of our generation because, you know, you wanted to get promoted, but it wasn't a disaster if you, if you, if, if you didn't. And clubs, I, I, this is, sounds a terrible Darwinian thing to say, but clubs knew their natural level. If you were a Walsall fan, you loved going to see Walsall play. You didn't expect somebody to come along, a Chinese millionaire, to, to drag you into the Premier League. And now it seems that everyone's unhappy unless they're in the Premier League. And again, maybe this is, this is something, this current situation is something that might refocus some of our, our desires and ambitions. Yes, I mean, I mean, one thing, one good thing which should come about this is I think we're all realising just how much we miss our clubs and how, how central it is to our lives. And perhaps in terms of ambition, actually, the aim should simply be to go there, to meet up with those friends, to have those shared experiences that, you know, we, we're both of the age whereby our shared experiences go back 50 years with the same people 
you know, reminding ourselves of it only has to be one. There's only one or two a season, which were absolutely great. Um, And that's what's important. I I think football is a great cause for good. I think it's a fantastic social uh, equalising sport as well. And that should be our focus rather than the glitz and the glamour that we've all been seduced by. I can't, well, I can't tell you. There's going to be a lot of people getting hugs in the Porson's arms the first time we go back in there. I, 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 that's when I know this will be over, when I open the door in the Porson's arms. And I, I, I've been dreaming about it. It's terrible. Um, also, I dream about meeting you, Kieran, obviously. So, and luckily, we're getting to do that twice a week now. So um, we'll be back on Sunday to record Monday's question special. So if you do have questions for us, it's questions at... Priceoffootball.com. Price of Football is a DAP dip production. We hope you're staying well and staying safe. And from Kieran and I, goodbye. The Price of Football. Bye-bye, folks. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. This is Creepy, a collection of the most famous and disturbing stories and urban legends from the deepest, darkest corners of the web. Hosted by creator John Grills and a cast of creepy narrators. New stories added every Sunday. Listener discretion is advised. Listen free on your favorite podcatcher or find us at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.